As they say, kids don't know what kids can't do, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, it's it's only with time and perspective and putting it all together. You, no way you could have known. You know, it, I am so grateful for having grown up this way. As a kid, I spent many, many weekends at the home of my friends Jason and Jeremy, and we would do this thing. We'd take their mother's video camera upstairs to their room, and we'd try to make movies. I was always the director for some reason, and Jason played the starring role of the Yellow Hornet. And Jason's little brother Jeremy played, well, he played everyone else, of course. I even remember that day that I realized that if I held the camera really steady, I could stop rolling on Jason after he snapped his fingers, have Jason leave the frame, then hit record again, and it would appear as if the Yellow Hornet had teleported out of the scene. It was all very high-concept stuff. But little did we know that down in Mississippi, around the same time, there was a group of kids putting us to shame. Because flash forward some 30 years later, Brannon calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, have you seen this documentary called Raiders? It's about these kids in Mississippi who made an entire shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, I had two thoughts when he told me this. One, I was slightly intimidated. And two, sold. But you have to understand, watching these kids in action... It was kind of like growing up thinking you were a pretty good basketball player to make varsity and go to the regional championships, and then someone shows you video footage of LeBron James playing high school hoops. It was crushing. But it was also exhilarating. Today, we're going to be sharing with you an interview that Brandon and I did not with the filmmakers of the Raiders documentary, but with one of the subjects of that documentary, Eric Zala, the kid director, now an adult, behind the unbelievably impossible and yet very, very real remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And his story is a saga that, for our money, rivals the greatest action adventures ever made. So, to recap, today's interview is with Eric Zala, who, as a child, directed a shot-for-shot remake of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, which later became the subject matter for a documentary about Eric's adventures making the remake. Is this getting confusing? Well, to make matters even more complicated, you'll hear me and Brannon interviewing Eric, which is something that at this moment in time we've already recorded, and I'll be popping in here now after the fact to provide color commentary. Oh, okay. You know what? When you hear this music, that's me now coming in to give my two cents on this whole thing. Does that make sense? You know what? Screw it. This is why I'm an actor and not a director.
what really, really uh, blew my mind was one day in sixth grade, my teacher, Milton Bienvenue, announced that the class was doing a class film. I, uh, it just galvanized me. I, I spent weekends um, writing up scenes uh, for the script and presenting them to my uh, teacher, like head of the studio, you know, we, we can join these two scenes that we shot together and make, make it work. Um, so I, I wound up wearing a lot of hats during the, uh, uh, the class film. And that introduced me to the world of movie making primitive though it was. And, uh, on the hour long bus ride, uh, I see this kid with a Rage Lost Art comic book, and uh, I asked to borrow it. And so that kid, Chris, got in his head that I was a Raiders fan, which I was, and led to a fateful phone call that summer. You know, we were very different. I was a quiet, brainy kid um, who uh, loved comic books. Chris was a gregarious, bombastic, uh, funny um people person, but we both shared love for Raiders. And yeah, for Chris, I know from past interviews that he really wanted to see himself up on the screen, you know, fighting the bad guys, getting the girl. Makes sense. Um, I was a behind the camera kind of guy. I really wanted to see what would a shot for shot remake of Raiders Lost Ark with kids look like. In a world where children have access to filmmaking equipment. No. no. <clears throat> Our intrepid young filmmakers have set out on their quest. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to use my regular voice. So this was the moment that makes childhood magical. The dissonance between let's run off and join the circus and the reality of possibly starving to death in the gutter. That doesn't exist when you're a kid. Anything is possible. And so, Eric and Chris thought, remake one of the most expensive and innovative action films of all time? Sure. How hard could it be? Chris and I realized that, uh, all right, there's a lot of special effects in Raiders, and uh, including lots of uh, special effects makeup. And Chris, uh, a born producer, spotted this kid who had done this remarkable haunted house in elementary school where you know you go through and you put your hand in this darkened box and it's grapes and you're told it's eyeballs and uh you know gory stuff like that well that caught chris's attention so he recruited jason uh, who came over to my house one summer afternoon and uh we showed him this fake head uh forestall in raiders uh that we were trying to make and uh jason like let me take that. And he went and got household items, uh, caulk, uh, shoe polish, <laughs> you know, from under the sink, Brillo pads, and fashioned this remarkably creative uh, corpse head. And uh, Chris and I looked at each other. It's like, all right, we got our man. So, yeah. <laughs> Jason, as different as Chris and I were, Jason was an entirely different uh, individual all to himself. How, how many vegans in, uh, in Mississippi, 13, year, 13 years old with a shaman medicine bag around their neck, do you run into? In Mississippi? <laughs> Not too much. Uh, 
And eventually, Jason, he took over his parents' garage, became sort of his mad science laboratory, where you know he uh, mixed up gallons of fake blood and uh, got fake corpses made and uh, all sorts of brilliant stuff. So Jason's an amazingly creative guy, still is. <laughs> so Eric, Chris, and now Jason began to put their heads together to figure out, okay, this isn't just fantasy anymore. If we're going to do this, how are we going to do this? It was the beginning of a conversation that would last the rest of their childhoods, and as you'll hear, well into their adulthoods as well. Suffice to say, when reality began to rear its ugly head, these kids didn't lose interest and move on to the next thing. They kept bearing down. And to me, as a filmmaker, as an artist, as a human, it turns into one of the most inspiring things I have ever witnessed. As, uh, as they say, kids don't know what kids can't do, and that's a good thing. Um, we started off with you know complete navite uh, and energy and lots of fumbling around in the dark. I mean, how do you remake a shot-for-shot shot remake uh, of a blockbuster on your allowance? Um, but, <laughs> but step by step, we figured it out, you know, hit the, bought, uh, coffee table books on ILM at the Walden books at the mall and researched. That was our way back then. Uh, upon watching this documentary the second time, something that really stood out and kind of shocked me was I had assumed that you and perhaps even, uh, Chris and even Jason, I don't know, had all seen the movie in the theater multiple times, taken notes. But apparently, I mean, according to the documentary, it looked like you, uh, how many, I mean, how, how much, how familiar were you with the film when you started this thing? Because this is before you could go rent it and. Ah, uh, yes. So, um, and you're you're right. This was at the advent of uh, video stores, and you couldn't just go out and rent Raiders. So Chris had bought the screenplay, published screenplay from Walden Books, but we knew we needed sound effects, and we needed. Uh, we naively thought we we're going to like sneak in a tape recorder uh, and record quality sound effects and use that in our film. Ha! Huh. Um, Chris actually got busted uh, trying to sneak it in. I uh, I guess maybe I look more innocent, so I, I was able to get pack, past the uh, copyright-minded usher. I also watched it trying to burn as much into my memory cells as possible, and because on the basis of that illicit recording and the screenplay and the trading cards with that photographs of the film and everything, Raiders, we could cobble our allowances uh, together with. Uh, that amassed, I spent an entire summer uh, sitting at the dining room table, drawing uh, 602 storyboards from memory. That was what astonished me is oh, hearing. I mean, I think that's a, I don't think people make a big deal. I mean, people, you know, give y'all props for how much energy you put in as they should, but I pointed, but I noticed how, how accurate a lot of the framing and the editing was some of the, especially uh, the, the sort of high adrenaline scenes really made an impression and really burned them into your memory because you got them spot on the <laughs> rhythm. Thanks. Thanks. Amazing. Uh, well, uh, thank you. It's uh, every note of the soundtrack, every word of dialogue is indelible in my, my memory. And I used to listen to that crappy recording while washing dishes, while doing all kinds of things 
to practice my faux French accent, you know. <laughs> Very comfortable up here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that and and also, uh, I, I, Brandon, I'm sure you noticed this, but Eric made exactly the same first mistake with live casting that you made. Uh, yeah, uh, I, was, I, was, I, was about, I was about to get into all that. Um, we just talked about it that in a recent episode. Oh, yeah, cool. I, I uh, my. It's I don't even know where to start, but watching the doc and watching the film is such a such a trip for me because I kind of started out doing almost the exact. I I too set my friend on fire uh, for the purpose of a film production, and I <laughs> wow, and I too. So I, no, the way I did it was probably even dumber because for the live casting thing, I cast myself. I didn't even have any. Fr- I had no friends. I, I I trapped myself in the plaster, and then oh, I had to ch- wow. chisel it off with a screwdriver and a hammer, all while blind. But you, um, but yours, your your accident went quite a bit further than mine. Mine, you know, I I got mine off. You had to go to the hospital. I did. I did, and um, I uh, finally after uh, after getting the motioning for a pad and paper because of course as you mm. know uh you can't really talk um wrote hospital <laughs> and uh <laughs> and finally the you know they call 911 my mom is in the front of the house she has no idea any of this is happening but she sees a squad car pull into the driveway i hear this uh cop damn boy what you got on your head so <laughs> they they helped me to the backseat of my mom's car, and I'm driven a distance to the hospital, uh, to the emergency room, where I, I was told later by Chris and Jason, you could see there's like 20 people in there all talking, you know, and all suddenly electric court doors whiz open, and they wheel in this kid with this immense plaster husk on his head. <laughs> the uh, surgeon comes in and pry, uh, well, first they take a saw that they used to buzz casts off with and take all except for the area around my eyes. And for that, surgeon comes in, takes a scalpel, and saws away at the infinitesimally small space between my eyelids. And because uh, it's not just my eyebrows, it's my eyelashes embedded yeah. in the plaster. And um, yeah, they weren't coming out for nothing. So I still have the pieces of plaster with my eyelashes and eyebrows stuck in them like, uh, you know, bristles of a brush. And uh, it told me, ah, sometimes eyebrows grow back and uh <laughs> and they did uh thankfully um barring my mom's eyebrow pencil uh to return to high school uh but yeah uh jason was so apologetic um he had uh used the wrong kind of plaster um turns out should have used dental alginate jason used industrial plaster which had a heating agent so even before all that mayhem, even before it got stuck, it started heating up really alarmingly. And the guys told me, yeah, it was too hot to put my hand on. It's like, nice to have that option. <laughs> <laughs> like my head was being baked. Uh, good times. Yeah. This is um, how you learn, but you didn't make that mistake again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Damn right. Yeah. I love in the, in the documentary also um, how after you, you allowed yourself to get set on fire for <laughs> the barroom brawl and uh, almost burned alive that uh, your your parents demanded that you have adult supervision. And I'm sorry, 
the the name of the gentleman who who eventually became responsible for you, who's a who's a former actor, Peter Kiefer. Yes, and and it's clear he got caught up in your uh, joie de vivre and your <laughs> <laughs> your, yes. your your filmmaking madness, and and. <laughs> Came even more dangerous. I mean, the shot of Chris with literally a bucket of kerosene <laughs> throwing it onto burning set pieces while he's dressed as Indiana Jones, and then putting it down real quick next to the fire so that he can act. It's just insane. Well, while Peter's going, you missed a spot. More fire over there. More fire. More, <laughs> more fire. fire yes. Yes. <laughs> Looking back on it. Oh, there, there's there's lots of shots of of that, you know, of entire buckets and lit torches sloshing it around. Uh, mason jars filled to the brim with with fuel. Um, it is amazing uh, how many times we dodged the bullet looking back on it. But yes, uh, God love Peter Kiefer. It was such a treat long after our film was discovered to track down Peter Kiefer and, and tell him because he had no clue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that, that, what really got me watching the, the, uh, the fan film is, is uh, I, I, that whole car chase in the, the third act. I am astounded that none of you died. <laughs> Yes, thankfully the truck scene we had waited until we'd kind of gelled as a team a bit um, before we are shooting uh, uh, stunts being enacted off of multiple driving cars driven by kids who may or may not have had their driver's permit at the time, um, <laughs> and um, of course the truck did not have brakes. Um, you know, we just, of course. <laughs> yeah, why? yeah. We found why? this abandoned <laughs> truck. <laughs> I mean, that's that? how, yeah. that's, that's how you can like smash the hell out of a truck and you're a kid without consequences, find a, an abandoned truck buried deep in the swamp with the tires rotted off and put fresh tires, build a, the canvas on the back. And, and, uh, it was missing the entire, um, gear shift, which made a, so, I mean, we would be riding in the truck and you look down and this hole in the cab, you see the, the, the dirt road flying by beneath. Well, my, uh, little brother, Kurt came, comes to the rescue once again, um, before years before he went off to MIT, he, uh, was mechanically minded enough to notice the brake lines and engineer pulley systems. So, uh, it was a, a rope tied to a hammer that eventually, if you pulled up, the truck would stop eventually. And because it had no engine, it was uh, either, for every single shot you see it in the truck scene, either pushed from behind or towed from the front, um, <laughs> depending on the angle of the shot. So, uh, yeah, good, good times. That was and uh, and just just that little story there that you told about finding the truck in the swamp, putting the tires back on, building a thing, painting it. Um, it just it just is something, and maybe a lot of casual viewers may not notice, but as a filmmaker, I I definitely noticed is how much work every sing nothing in a film happens on accident. Nothing is just mm -hmm. there. <laughs> Everything has to be procured or made or borrowed or stolen or something, but it has to be solved. And, and for, I was just telling Anson while we had a, a little disconnect, I was noticing the scene in the, uh, the market where Marion is being, uh, uh, 
kidnapped in one of those giant baskets and i noticed you know you had to you had to recreate that scene and there's all these like six or seven of those very tall woven baskets and i'm just thinking that's just another thing you had to find somewhere in in your little town in mississippi i mean it's an endless uh, uh, film production is so needy y'all needed so many things and Thank you. yes the work that had to go into finding all of that stuff or making that stuff is you know when you, you kind of have to live it to appreciate it but i i can't imagine i mean just the, the all the off-screen work i'll put into this thing is uh numbing <laughs> <laughs> thank you well that is that is uh when people ask well why did it take seven years uh i think you have you have an appreciation as to why yeah those um hell those baskets uh we got they were sold as laundry baskets at world bazaar at the the local shopping mall which was a, a thing back then um shopping mall became where we would troll uh for props um chess king for belloc's white jacket um because you know miami vice was hot at the time uh and as much fake snakes uh, as our life as our allowances would support and toys r us and um <laughs> eventually cut up uh, links of of hose and spray painted black uh for more of the snakes and the well of the soul scene but uh challenges kind of are the mother of creativity um to paraphrase if i had to do all over again i'm glad i don't have to do it again but i'm <laughs> but i'm grateful uh for our limitations um because yeah we really had to to push and find a way of doing it where do you get a location for the sahara desert in mississippi um you know where do you get a world war ii submarine i imagined ultimately further on as we got into it what it must have been like for Spielberg to be shooting in Tunisia. You know, I have a dog-eared copy of The Making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, as you might expect, um, our motivations kind of deepened as huh, the years went on. And, uh, and we kept on shooting and shooting. Uh, when we were nearly almost over the finish line, Chris got so fed up one time, uh, he uh, engineered a editing room mutiny and uh the film almost didn't get finished um after picture lock but before so, doing so, any of this sound work. but wait so 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 paint the picture for us what when you say editing room mutiny what the fuck happened <laughs> <laughs> well uh we had after six years finally finished and uh it's like all right we got to edit all the previous years worth of footage and uh chris got kind of uh impatient uh that was one of his weaknesses kind of growing up was when it wasn't fun um chris was the probably the first of the three of us to want to be tempted to throw in the towel that particular night i was uh, away uh, actually uh for my birthday and this was after chris uh and jason and i achieved picture lock and chris said all right great so we're done I said almost another two weeks i'd say uh to do the music sound effects chris is like two weeks are you kidding me um said come on there sound is so much we you know hang in there we're we're gonna finish it well the following night i arrive at 10 o'clock as is our usual routine go up to the editing room and discover the boxes of tapes with a note eric 
movie's finished. Chris and Jay. I'm like, uh, this isn't good. So I put in the, the tape and watch it. And to my horror, I see um, what music and sound effects there are just kind of like slapped on. Some are in sync, some are not. There's entire passages where the soaring John Williams score should be there, and it's this interminable silence um, instead. In short, far from finished. So um, I take the tapes and uh, I drive to Chris's house. Um, and the sun was coming up, and Chris and Jay actually apparently spent the night at Chris's place, and they were pulling out. I just caught him, and I go up to Chris. He buzzes down the the minivan. Uh, driver's window and say, Chris, come on, we can't stop now. It's not finished. And uh, Chris said, fuck you, man, stop whining. And, uh, <laughs> and peeled out, literally leaving me in a cloud of dust. <laughs> we didn't talk for a long time after that. Um, that was the, uh, the end of the summer of 88. And I went off to, I was now, uh, going to my sophomore year at NYU Film School. But it wasn't until the following summer of 89, where thankfully, a little movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out. And I'd kind of cooled off by this point. And I knew Chris. I knew well enough to know how much seeing Indy on screen inspires him. So I give him a call. Hey, I know we're not talking, but you want to go see the third one? Yeah, sure. So we do. And... As I'd hoped, uh, the spark was lit again. And Chris calls me a couple days later and says, you know what? I've been thinking. Um, you're right. We should go back in there and do the sound right and finish this. So uh, Chris was, Jason had flown uh, to California that summer to spend with his dad. So it was just me and Chris, but we got back together and it was right this time. And we, uh, we dug through the, the sound effect library of the TV station and, and uh, lifted sound effects off of Raiders, the movie on record, and of course, the John Williams score available on LP and cassette and synced it up right. And uh, it was so satisfying to see the punch sound effects happen when they should. Uh, the John Williams score, particularly the, uh, the truck scene, um, and, uh, <laughs> and of course, ADR and dubbing. So, uh, finally finished to a hometown premiere of 200 Friends and Family, uh, in which we're, we show, for all we know, is the first and only ever public screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. Um, it uh, gets a, a good response, but of course, it's hometown, you know, Friends and Family. So we, but we don't know if it's any good or not, but it's satisfying. And we felt like, all right, ah, we have closure. <laughs> and um, so we went off to college um, and it went on our bookshelf. And that's where most independent film projects end up. Since the advent of high-definition video and the proliferation of editing software, it's become a buyer's market. What I mean by this is that about 10 years ago, a friend of mine who's kind of a quant in the entertainment industry, he estimated that every year, the films submitted just to Sundance collectively represent over $1 billion worth of investment, of which only a few are ever bought and distributed. In other words, you will never see the far majority of great films made year over year. 
our zeitgeist has limited shelf space. So most films end up, as depressing as it sounds, on the dusty bookshelves of the people who made them. Usually. We never entered it into a single film festival. It was just the point was to finish. And uh, at NYU, I would like, um, I think I, I showed it in the, the TV lounge once and I actually got a huge reaction and thought, oh, this is cool. But I didn't think much more of it. Uh, went on to graduate college, uh, work at a, a company, and, and uh, it became an annual tradition. Eric screens his Raiders film in the conference room. And it got a huge <laughs> response then. But there too, uh, didn't, we didn't really know what we had. Uh, well, when I moved to Los Angeles, I had a roommate from NYU, a film editor uh, named Frank Reynolds, who had uh, asked to see it. And so one night, there's nothing, nothing new at Blockbuster, so we watch it. And Frank uh, dug it and uh, and uh, made a copy and passed it on to a friend who passed it on to a friend who passed it on to a friend. Six degrees of separation later, copy falls in the hands of Eli Roth, horror movie director whose cabin fever is a hit, and he's taking meetings all around Hollywood, including DreamWorks. And so he brings from his car this battered VHS bootleg of our movie that he's a fan of and slides it across the conference room table and says, you really need to check this out. The guy calls him back, head of production, Paul Lister, calls Eli back on Monday. Hey, uh, this is great. Um, I'm going to pass it on to Steven. Uh, then he calls uh, Eli back. Stephen loves it. He wants to write the guys a letter. What are their addresses? Well, Eli doesn't know. He's never met us. Uh, so he tracks down one of us, Jason, through the internet and uh, calls him up out of the blue. Jason thinks he's a student filmmaker, has no idea, but passes on Chris and I's email. And that's how, at an otherwise normal day at the office, I get this email out of the blue. Hi, Eric. You don't know me, but my name's Eli Roth. I'm a filmmaker. And this might sound strange, but Steven Spielberg loves your little Raiders movie. <laughs> he wants to write you a letter of appreciation. What's your address? I'm like, oh, come on. Who's pulling my leg here? I mean, this kind of thing doesn't happen, right? Well, turns out it does. Um, and I talked to Eli about three hours that night. Yeah, it was full of um, lots of questions. Turns out he uh, had done, uh, felt that urge as a kid too, uh, in his case, doing a shot for shot remake of Ch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He did pass our addresses on, and that's how I got a, in the mail, uh, a letter marked uh, return address SS. And my wife photographed me in various stages of opening this letter from my childhood hero, uh, thanking me for your very loving and detailed tributes um, and, uh, and wonderful things. And uh, I thought, it can't get any better than this. But it could. <laughs> it could. So it was the discovery of their fan film by the filmmaker of the film they had remade that got the boys talking again. Because, you see, I kind of lied earlier. They didn't make a complete shot-for-shot -shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Not that they didn't try. But there was one scene that, as kids, 
they just couldn't figure out how to tackle. And that's the airplane scene. Uh, that's because, of course, at the end, plane blows up and, well, the only way that we could think to do that is to blow up a model airplane, say with an M60 firework. And this might sound odd um, given <laughs> the entirety of the project, but we didn't want it to look cheesy. Um, <laughs> it made sense at the time. Then people would ask us uh, about the airplane scene. We explain why and we joke and say, huh, yeah, we, we should do this right. We should get the gang back together again and, uh, and uh, shoot. Do you think anybody would notice the diff age difference? But it was exactly that, the age difference, the realization that through all of life's ups and downs, through the good times and the bad, one thing had remained constant, the project. And in their assumption that such a seemingly difficult stunt as the airplane scene would be silly, stupid, impossible, they had lost touch with those kids who hadn't seen any boundaries. And soon, the conversation began to take the form of a plan. You know, the vision always was, let's make this as spectacularly cool as we can pull off within the reach of our arm. And as adults, we felt, okay, you know, um, no excuses, we got to deliver. You know, we raised, uh, did a Kickstarter campaign, raised $58,000 to build a 78 foot replica of the flying wing in a mud pit in, Van Cleve, Mississippi, um, and then hire a professional power technician to blow it up. Um, what could go wrong? <laughs> As it turns out, a lot. But we're not going to get into that here because we don't want to spoil the documentary. And if you've already seen it, then you already know what happens. But you don't know what happened after they finished the shoot. But what's cool, um, when uh, and a difference... Uh, you know, doing it now, uh, the airplane scene versus then as kids is uh, you have more resources. You don't have more time, but you have more resources, including some fans at Skywalker Ranch. We did a employee screening at years before they invited us out. Um, and so they volunteered to do, get this, the sound for free. <laughs> wow. You know, a certain guy named Ben Burt, right? Yeah. Of course you oh do. my God. He signed off on the sound mix he went to the original stems Unreal. that they used. Um, and of course, we used Pat Roach's voice, you know, the original muscular German in the airplane scene. He actually um, has uh, uses a bit of that that was unused in the original Raiders in ours. So it feels like at last we have the chromosomes, the DNA right. of the original Raiders has been like melded with our oh own. Oh my um, God, that's crazy. Right? That's crazy. It, it is. It is. I am so grateful. And they make it sound so good. And as you know, sound adds so much. Well, I, I got to tell you, when, when, um, when you're watching your film, the, the fan film, uh, and it goes from when you were kids to suddenly you're shooting on high, super high def video and the, the, you know, they come out of the sarcophagus, you know, in the, the original movie, that's just a, an innocuous moment, a stitched together piece of, you know, it's sort of a stitching together point A and point B. But in your movie, when Chris and Angela come out of that sarcophagus or that, 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 that rune mm -hmm. as adults, 
it is one of the most triumphant <laughs> things I think I've ever seen in film. It, you just find yourself cheering because mm-hmm. it just it, it's amazing. It's just an amazing moment in film history. I think. Thank you. When um, to support the documentary, um, I sold that house and quit that job and went on a 65 city tour across America doing a double feature of the doc and the fan film. And whenever the fan film would come on, I, that moment you're right is, uh, is a special one. I would break away from the merch table and sneak in because I would always love to see the audience's reaction because, <laughs> yeah, they're 25 years older from when we last saw them a second ago. And uh, I figured, okay, I'm going to lean into the contrast, you know, um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but you never know if it's going to play. And God, it, um, for all the anguish and all the sleepless nights and all the near ulcer that I, I got, it is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. I, uh, I felt um, the cheers, you know, um, when they would emerge. Um, and they could tell. You can tell, right? It's the same, well, not kids anymore. It's the same actors. Um, so, thank you. Um, that and cutting unexpectedly back to the uh, the jittery '80s Betamax, you know, for one shot, and then back to the super high def 5.1 surround sound. Um, that uh, that was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. That uh, is deeply satisfying uh, to to see it play. <laughs> no, that was actually the same moment that where I first became aware of this of, of, of all of it. I never, you know, but that was you know my first introduction to the whole. Raiders fan film. I never heard about it. A friend of mine said, told me about it. And I was kind of probably half listening until he said at one point, they he's uh, in the well of souls as like an 18 year old. And then he comes out 25 <laughs> years later. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> what? I, I think that we've, as far as I know, we've set a record for the dis- length of time between pickup shots. <laughs> I think you probably have. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it, it couldn't have come at a better point in the movie because uh, after the plane sequence, you go back into yeah the from when you were kids and see the rest of the movie play out. And I got to tell you, man, that, I'm getting a little choked up talking about it right now. But when the when that climax happens and the arc closes, and Indy and his girl realize that they have survived and in your movie portraying those characters chris and angela turn to each other and embrace each other i mean i'm getting you can hear i'm getting i'm getting choked up right now. my wife caught me crying earlier today because I, I had watched it and it's just uh it's about so much more than that movie it man it really encapsulates so much of what i've dedicated my life to and what we go through to do this and, and what it means, the, the, um, the, the seeming uh, pointlessness of it all is maybe the biggest point of all. And the, the <laughs> love, the love that comes out of these stupid endeavors, uh, yeah. man, all right there in that one shot. I mean, it's just, I got to tell you, man, as a filmmaker, that is, that is masterful. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, I love that that 
moment too. You know, obviously it was John Williams beneath it, but yeah, the uh, the whole sense of how far we've come gets me um, when when we see that, particularly <laughs> when when you're in the midst of this, as you know, you have no idea what it is that you're doing. You know, and in our outtakes and shooting uh, a shot near that, um, it was our last shot before we went into editing. And Chris is like, oh, great. Now we have to edit this, you know, this fucking thing. You know, it's it's only with time and perspective and putting it all together. You, no way you could have known, you know. It, I am so grateful for having grown up this way. Somebody in the documentary said uh, that it wasn't that anyone missed out on their childhoods by spending all their summers on this project. You filmed your childhood. <laughs> yeah. And that was the reason to get together. That was the reason to do this. I mean, in some ways, of course, back then you're probably focused on, you know, then the, the, the remake and the Indiana Jones part of it. But what you're really doing is creating an excuse to hang out with your friends, do crazy things. And I've always, as a filmmaker, I've always kind of, I have a very Fellini-esque kind of attitude towards, you know, why we do any of the stuff in the first place. And that is to hang out with your friends. And then you get to edit the bad stuff out. <laughs> right. That's one way filmmaking is better than real life, right? Yeah. You got to edit out the part where Chris, uh, where Chris started bitching right after that triumphant moment in the scene, because that part sucks. So, uh, you know, just stick with the part that, that you want, that you want to keep. And that's, look, neurologically, we do that anyway. We do. That's what yeah. the brain, that's what the brain does. Selective. But yeah, it's always a selective memory. But in film, you really get to formalize it and really, you know, and then you put it, and then you put John Williams under it. And man, your childhood looks awesome. And it's, <laughs> uh, and it's just, but I, just a second, what Anson said, I mean, this thing, the reason people respond to it is that it's just the heart. There's just so much. We somehow gotten this far in this interview and have not uh, succumbed to the cliche of referring to this whole thing as a love letter to cinema, <laughs> but uh, it is. It is. I mean, there's so much heart in this thing. It's uh, I can't think of anything. I, I can't think of any film that actually beats it on on that particular metric. Wow. It's 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 all heart. It's all friendship. I mean, because as you said, there was no profit motive. <laughs> <laughs> Far from it. Finishing the damn thing. That was as highfalutin as we dare dream. Um, you know, uh, it's like, I mean, uh, Pipe dream, huh? Maybe someday Spielberg will see it and like it and not sue us. Yeah, right. Get back to spray painting hieroglyphics on my mom's basement wall on a Friday night. Yeah. And I got to say, like, we talked about a little bit about this earlier, but I just wanted to point out, like, when watching the credits, at the end, at the, at the, the second credits, because there's two credits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the second credits, uh, when, you, when you published all of the not just the Kickstarter uh, donations, but, but the, the thousands of people that, that gave money and time and resources and materials to see this dream come true, knowing that they weren't going to get any of that monetary stuff back. It's just, I mean, it's just, there's something so, special that you captured here beyond uh the story it's uh, mm -hmm. the passion for storytelling itself wow mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thank you 
I, uh, I, uh, we certainly, it's all risk, you know, I mean, like I said, uh, we didn't know if when we did the Kickstarter thing, if people would care enough to bust out their wallet to help a couple of middle-aged guys finish their childhood dream, you know? Um, and what if the, what if our campaign failed? Gosh, that would be so embarrassing. But, um, looking back, it seems like a foretold conclusion, but it was, it was scary, you know, uh, back then. And, and yeah, to see people respond like that and, and help so much that, uh, it's a beautiful thing. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode provided by Audio Reusout under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Thanks to John Hudgens for helping us make this episode happen. And extra special thanks to Eric Zela for taking the time to sit down with us. And guess what? It seems Hollywood has called, and there is now interest in a scripted version of Eric, Chris, and Jason's story. I have no doubt that we will also get a follow-up documentary about the making of that project, and we'll be here again. And we hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. Music